Dear Father, we lift up our prayers to you tonight, Father, in thanks and in awe and in wonder of all that you do and are doing with us and what you are um, endeavoring to accomplish through the study of your word in this church. It was not that long ago, Father, that none of us uh, were even contemplating being together as a body. We had our we had our routines and we had our places in which we congregated, and then here we are. And it's no different, really. It's all the same body, Father. We know that. But at the same time, in your wisdom and in your providence, you move us, move us around and you reconnect us with different groups from time to time. And you do that, Father, because you know what's best for us. So we trust that what's in this room tonight and what we do here on the weekends is what we need. And it perhaps comes from the teaching, but perhaps it comes from our interactions with one another something else in the room that we need. We just trust in all those things. We don't worry about the details, Father. We couldn't possibly grasp all that you're doing anyway. We just trust that it all comes together as you intend. And we're just trying to be receptive in our hearts to it, Father. And uh, I know that this book that you've written and provided to us is is somewhat neglected. I don't know many who teach it or care to. Uh, probably not many who've studied it. And uh, that's That's just a a problem we don't want to have, Father. We want to be open to everything you have to teach us, even things that might seem remote, even things of people from long ago. So, Father, make it real, make it personal tonight. Help us understand it in a way that we'll live differently for your sake. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, chapter 18. Coming back into the Lord's response to Israel's seventh excuse. You remember the exiles of Israel are sitting in captivity in Babylon. And in that place, they had reasons that they thought they could justifiably ignore the Lord's warnings of judgment that were being given to them by the prophet Ezekiel. The Lord told them through Ezekiel that the city of Jerusalem, back in Judah, was on the verge of total destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. It was about to suffer this fate because many of the sins that Israel perpetrated against the Lord, against His covenant, had reached the point now, particularly idolatry, where the Lord had to act to discipline his people. But the ones who were in exile already, having come out of the city in earlier campaigns of the Babylonian army, they still did not believe what they were being told. They wouldn't believe that that destruction was coming. They couldn't believe that the city was slated for complete and utter destruction. They told themselves there were all these reasons why it couldn't come to pass the way Ezekiel said. Altogether, they give eight excuses. And that's the center section of this part of the book of Ezekiel from 12 through chapter 19. You have eight excuses. And last week, we looked at the sixth excuse, and we began the seventh. And we did that because they were related to one another. Israel's sixth excuse proposed that God would never hold the current generation of Israel accountable for all the sins of those prior generations. I mean, that's not fair. And what the Lord said in answering that objection was you're just as bad as they were. You're just repeating the pattern of sin that your prior generations engaged in. And he says, you have evil kings just like they had evil kings, and you're following in the depravity of your king just like they did their kings. So in other words, you're equally guilty, and therefore you're equally due judgment. So much for your sixth excuse. But that response, as we studied it, just prompted out of the people of Israel... Yet a new excuse, the seventh one. And the people said in that case that if judgment was truly coming, as Ezekiel said, then there was really no benefit, no purpose in them repenting, as Ezekiel demanded. Because they said there would be no gain in their repentance. I mean, we're going to pay for the sins of our nation regardless. Because we can't change the past. 
We read in verse 20 of this chapter, chapter 18, last week, that the Lord corrected Israel again. He says, you know, I don't hold a person accountable for the sin of another person. Each person is accountable for their own sin before the Lord. And therefore, if a Jew living under the law of Moses acted righteously, that is, if they obeyed the covenant, they would live. But if they disobeyed, they would die as the law required. Now, when I looked at that statement with you last week, I told you that in the context that we're looking at here, to live or to die refers to physical life and death, not to spiritual life or death. The Lord was simply expressing the reality of the law's power over those who lived under it. Just like our laws today. If we obey our laws, we enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you disobey the law, well, then you should expect to suffer the consequences that the law requires. And in Israel's case, the law we're talking about is the law of Moses. And it specified death for anyone who failed to live obediently under the law. Mistakes could be made, yes. Obviously, people sinned every day. And if they did, they had an opportunity to sacrifice in the rules that the, that the law provided, in the temple, and so on. But in that way, they were still living under the law, even in the fact that they went and they sacrificed. But for the Jew who purposely disobeyed, who purposely refused to conduct themselves according to the law, who refused to participate in the sacrificial system, and in other words, the Jews that are living in the time of Ezekiel, basically, for them, the law had no sacrifice to cover that kind of intentional disobedience. There was only the penalty of death. And so the Lord is simply telling Israel, that they are going to pay the price for their own sins under that law according to its terms, not because of anything their forefathers did, but because of what they're doing now. And that price was death. Nevertheless, he said there was still a good reason for Israel to consider repenting, despite their excuse that said, no, we can't repent because it's coming. It's a done deal. No, no, no. You could still repent. You should still heed the prophet's warnings because, he says, if they repented, the Lord was willing to grant them mercy and spare their lives. Let's pick up again at that point in chapter 18. And as we move through this chapter, we'll move into 19 as well. But we pick up in verse 21. Look at how he refutes the logic that says there's no point in repenting. He says, If the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, and observes all my statutes, and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions, which he has committed, will not be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness, which he has practiced, he will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Rather, that he should turn from his ways and live. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds, which he has done, will not be remembered for his treachery which he has committed and his sins which he has committed. For them he will die. All right, so here you find the Lord's argument against that seventh excuse that says repentance was of no use at this point. The Lord says, not so. Repentance very much still matters to those who were in Israel, those who were still living in the city of Jerusalem, because it's the only way the wicked are going to save their lives in the coming disaster. In verse 21, he says, If the wicked among the people of Israel were to turn from those sins and were to submit themselves under the law again, that's what he means when he says, if they would practice justice, righteousness, if they would observe my statutes. He's talking about someone moving away from a life of idolatry outside the law to resubmitting themselves to living according to the law of Moses. Well, he says, if they do that, they will survive the coming invasion. In the earlier chapters of this book, in, in past teaching, Ezekiel has told the people, 
what to expect. He said there's going to be a third invasion of the city from the Babylonian army. It's going to be devastating. No one's going to escape. But he's told them there was two possible outcomes for them in that coming invasions. They could submit to God's judgment, essentially surrendering to the Babylonians. And if they did, they're going to be hauled off. Yeah, They're going to be in captivity, yes. But they're going to live. And he said he would provide for them in captivity. Or they could fight that judgment and he says, you will die in the city. Or you will die outside the city. But you will die. That's the choice that he's put before the people. To put it simply, he's saying, you can either share in Ezekiel's fate or in Zedekiah's fate. If you remember, we've studied who Zedekiah was. He was that last king that stood against Babylon. And when they came the third time and conquered the city, as we're hearing will happen, remember what they did to him? Yeah, took his eyes out, hauled him back, let him die in Babylon. What the Lord is saying is, you can be the rebellious who will see the full measure of my wrath, or you can be like Ezekiel, the godly man who was caught up in the activity because he was there, and that's how this works, but he lives. And he's provided for in captivity. Now, I want you to take note of how generous the Lord's mercy is for his people in the midst of all this. He says, if they repent, notice he's he's at a very late point In this process, he says, if you repent at this point, the Lord will not remember your past sins under the old covenant. Now, that is one good deal. That is a that is quite some leniency, because that is not how this should work. The people of this generation we're talking about now, the ones who are caught up in this this whole circumstance, just just like the prior generations, they were intensely wicked people. And we've seen some of this in prior chapters. They, they engaged in all manner of sexual perversion, gross idolatry, prostitution in the temple. They had idols set up in the temple. They even did child sacrifice. You name it. Okay? And after all of that, the Lord says, I will willingly spare your lives, despite what the law would have required under these circumstances, overlooking the requirements of the law in that regard, because you heeded the prophet and you repented. Now, once more, I need to clarify something here because it may be easy to misunderstand what's going on. We're talking about matters in relationship to the Old Covenant, which are never matters of salvation. Never matters. If you're talking about the Old Covenant and salvation, you've got two things that should never be combined because one has nothing to do with the other. No one ever receives eternal life by following the law. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. So when the Lord calls for repentance in this situation... And he asks Israel to submit again to the law. It's in respect to the law's requirements to avoid physical death. That's what this whole thing is about. So he says, repent, that is to repent of living in defiance to the law. And then when he says, I will not remember your sins anymore, he's speaking of the sins you committed against that covenant. And then he promises that that repentant sinner may live. He simply means you will be spared the penalty of the law which was physical death. This is all in the context of saving your earthly life from a law that you violated. That's all he's talking about. None of these things are eternal matters. This is not a call to repent so as to escape judgment in hell. That's not what he's asking people to do here. This is not an offer to receive eternal life by abiding by the law. That is a works-based gospel. That's not the Bible. Salvation is found only by faith in Messiah. So in this case, the Lord is offering his people an escape from earthly judgment because of their sins under the old covenant. Now, that's still no small matter. We're not talking about something that's, you know, oh, well, that doesn't matter. No, we're talking about how you save your physical life. And I assure you, the people in Jerusalem had that very desire. And he's given them the way to do it, despite all of their history 
of abominable practices under the law, he's still there willing to give them mercy. And you get your confirmation of of my interpretation here just by looking at verse 24. When the Lord switches this around, and he says, the one who lives righteously at first, but then later falls into iniquity and begins to commit iniquity by not observing the law, what's going to happen to that person? That person, he says, will die in the end. All right, now that statement clearly tells us we're talking about how you're treated under the old covenant. Because under the old covenant, and this is something worth remembering when you think about law, the old covenant stood ready to condemn anyone who lived under it at any time. In other words, a man could live 80 years in Israel, and in his 80 years of life, observe the law to his best ability, and never have any accusation made against him that he ever did anything wrong under the law. Let's say that that could happen. And in his 81st year, he just gets tired and gives up and decides, I'm not doing this anymore, and starts to disobey the law. Do you know what happens to that man? He dies in his 81st year. All that prior time of doing the law well, that doesn't count for anything. The law stood ever ready to condemn anyone who couldn't keep it. I mean, it's no different than today. If you refrain from murdering for 80 years and then murder someone in your 81st year, the law is going to throw the book at you. And justifiably so. You don't get to say, hey, I did it for 80 years. Can't I have a little kill once in a while? I mean, that's not how this works. This is So I just don't want you to think about this in some mystical, weird way. It's just normal life. You have a law. It had a penalty. They weren't keeping the law. God says, and remember, they weren't keeping their law so much so that they weren't even penalizing each other for not keeping the law. It would be like the whole nation suddenly decided, in our case, to throw the books out the window, throw the Constitution and all the laws of our nation out the window and let people just do whatever they want. The difference between us and them is they were a theocracy and their higher power was involved in their uh, jurisprudence. And so God said, you're not going to hold yourselves accountable to the law? Okay, I will. And you're all going to die if you keep this up or if you repent and come back under the law. I'm going to give you this this one-time amnesty mercy and I'll let you live through this judgment that's coming. That's a pretty good deal. Pretty good deal. That's not how the grace of the new covenant works. And that's how I can say for assurance that we're not talking here about salvation matters. Because salvation's always been by faith, always been by grace, through faith, never been any different. And so the, the rules God has set up for his people under these circumstances are not the rules of grace. They're not the rules of salvation. So we know he's not dealing with a salvitic issue. He's dealing with earthly issues. In the new covenant, by faith in Christ, when you come to faith in Jesus, your sins are covered and paid for by the blood of Christ. And that includes sins past, present, and future. So, you simply put, you cannot sin your way out of a covenant of grace. Right? The Bible says that by your faith in Jesus, you are forgiven and eternally a child of God. You have eternal life. Not eternal life for now. That's a contradiction. You have eternal life. So the Lord was promising a way, in this case, for those who were in Israel, in Jerusalem, who practiced idolatry under the Old Covenant to receive mercy if they repented so that they might live through the coming judgment. But those who did not repent, the full penalty of the law would come down on their heads and they would die. The Babylonians in this case effectively serve as the Lord's judges and executioners so that they carry out the terms of the covenant. The Lord said, that's coming even if you've been a pretty good person up till recently. So the Lord says he would rather see the wicked repent and live longer on the earth. And he says in verse 23, Do I have any pleasure in seeing people dying, even the wicked? 
That I'm not, in other words, he's saying, I'm not bloodthirsty in bringing this judgment. Now, for you and I who know the Lord by his spirit, these kinds of statements are not very surprising. That's the character of God that we know, right? But, I mean, you and I stand amazed at the grace of God on a regular basis. That's, that's the experience you have as a believer. But I think this is pretty remarkable when you think about it for a minute. It's remarkable to think that God cares about how long we live on the earth. And he even cares about the life of the sinful unbeliever in that regard. I mean, that's saying something, really. He desires, by his own word, he says he desires to see men and women living their lives as a testimony, as a record of obedience, and that he would extend that life to some degree as a way of of letting that testimony live out. I'm not saying there's a quid pro quo here. I'm not just saying, you know, you do the right things and you live longer. That's not, that's too simplified a view of what I'm saying. But he has said in his own word that he does not delight in taking the lives of the wicked. He would rather see them repent and live, which implies live longer. Right? He doesn't enjoy ending life earlier than necessary to put an end to wickedness. He, he, he takes pleasure in seeing the evil turn from their ways. But here's the truth. One way or another, the Lord makes every person's life a testimony. So it's either going to be through obedience or it's going to be through judgment. Not that we all see a, you know, an army roll into town and crush us. I'm saying in different ways to some extent. The Lord's interested in making all of us a testimony. And he makes clear which of those two roads he prefers. I just think this is remarkable insight into the heart of the Almighty God. That even though He's sovereign, and even though He brings all history to an appointed end, nonetheless, our place in that plan still matters to Him. We're not just pawns on a chessboard that God is moving around indiscriminately and dispassionately. I mean, certainly believers are, as Paul says, the chosen of God, holy and beloved in Christ, loved into eternity. But even those in Israel in this day who were not believing were yet still precious to God, such that he would desire that they might live a little longer in peace under the law. I think that's an important corollary to any doctrinal view that sees God as you know, the sovereign um, author of history that we know him to be. That's true. But don't let that diminish your appreciation for his compassion, because they, those two things work hand in hand. He asked them to obey his word. He has a purpose eternally in how he's moving the nations around Israel to get the outcome he wants. But in the midst of that, he's asking for wicked people to live a little longer on earth in response to repentance. I mean, you kind of wonder why they wouldn't want that. It seems like a win-win, you know? You obey and you live longer. By your obedience, you're going to have a nicer life. And in that way, also a longer life, right? And yet they don't do this, not generally. The city, as the history books record and as Scripture records, didn't have a moment of revival. This is not the story of of Jonah and Nineveh, unfortunately. They were too busy making excuses. And the Lord picks up on that in verse 25. He says, yet you say, the way... So he's just put out the offer of mercy, and here's the response. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. I hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies because of it, for his iniquity, which he has committed, he will die. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness, which he has committed, and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all his transgressions, which he had committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. But the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not right. Are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? So he kind of goes back and forth on the same point. We get it. But you just get a sense from 
what he says, how hypocritical and self-deceived the people of Israel were concerning their own sin. He calls them out. He says, is the problem not you, not me, rather than me? That I'm actually acting righteously? I'm holding you accountable. By the way, that is the righteous thing to do. I think I said here once before that, you know, as a parent, if your child does something wrong, and then you go to punish them, and they say, don't punish me, in effect, they're asking you to do your wrong in the face of their wrong, because the right thing to do is to hold them accountable. At some level, in whatever way you choose. But to just turn a blind eye to mistakes is asking for new mistakes to be made. And that thinking is the wrong person, someone doing the wrong thing, and then turning around to the one who would hold them accountable and asking that person to do the wrong thing too. And God says, am I not the one who's doing the right thing here? You disobey the covenant, I'm keeping it. Which is to say, I'm holding you accountable under its terms. But the Lord was going even beyond the terms of that covenant when he was willing to spare their lives. Because the covenant said you had to die. God was saying, I'll overlook that for your sake if you repent. Offering clemency. So he's saying, I'm doubly doing the right thing. Unfortunately, it's human nature, generally, to turn away from these kinds of offers of mercy. And to do it in the way they're doing it. To blame the messenger and then blame anyone who tries to hold us accountable for not obeying the messenger. So if you violate the law, for example, in an ungodly, fleshly moment, if you're doing the wrong thing and you get caught by a policeman, don't you blame the cop? Aren't you a little angry at him? Aren't you a little upset at what he's doing? Don't you wish he would do differently? You know, don't you feel a little annoyed by him doing his job? And if the judge you know, holds you to the terms of the law and applies the appropriate penalty, you know, don't you feel like it's somehow unjust? Don't you wish he had listened to your excuses? I mean, there's that better part of us that knows that we should accept these things as a consequence we deserve. But the point is, unrighteousness created the circumstance, and it's further unrighteousness to turn from the results and you know, to malign those who are holding us accountable under the results and pretend that somehow they now have an obligation to do something for us. I mean, it's just what we all want. A godly, mature perspective, on the other hand, appreciates that you can't live that way. Israel lacked that insight. What they saw was their messenger, God's appointed, Ezekiel, was the problem. And then when God holds them accountable, they blame God for being unfair under the law. And the Lord just refuses to listen to that hypocrisy. He says, I've been utterly fair, and it's all your fault. And I would say this to anybody who was, particularly if they did not know the the Lord and were not saved, I would say, if your strategy for your own judgment moment before God boils down to debating with Him over whether or not you're truly as bad as He says you are, I would encourage you to rethink that plan. (laughs) Because, you know... You're not going to be able to twist the facts or put a pretty face on your behavior before God. And as believers, though we don't face that kind of judgment, we face a different judgment, there's a similar sense, I think, in which we we expect to be able to go into that and just it'll all work out. Our judgment is for the benefit of rewards, not for the sake of judging our sin. But still, I think we start to you know grade ourselves on the curve a little bit. We need to be careful about that. The Lord's not going to entertain hypocrisy. Uh, He's going to be shown to be the perfect judge that He is, and His judgments will stand apart from any protests. As Jesus says in Mark 4.22, For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. That's not just speaking of prophecy. That's speaking about every matter of creation. So the nation's seventh excuse was just bankrupt like all the rest. And the Lord sums up his response here as he ends the chapter. We'll just cover this quickly and move into 19. He says, 
Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that your iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. The thing I want to emphasize, I'd like you to note in that summary, most of all, is what he says in verse 30, when he says that their sin of idolatry had become a stumbling block to them. Normally when you and I think about stumbling blocks from Scripture, typically what we think of when we say a stumbling block is that thing or person that leads us into sin. And as a result, it stumbles us into sin. And that's true. That is a a, a good use of the term. But there's another way that term gets used in the Bible that you see here that we often forget. The Bible also talks about sin itself being a stumbling block anytime your investment in that sinful practice impedes your ability to repent. So you can become so wedded to a lifestyle of sin or to a particular type of sin that putting it away becomes too great a loss for you to bear. And you're deceived by the sin itself into thinking that keeping it in your life is somehow better than letting it go. And everyone does this. That was Israel's problem. They were so invested in idolatry and the sexual perversions and all that went with it, they couldn't see a way out. They couldn't imagine a life without that stuff. And in that way, their iniquity became a stumbling block to their repentance. It was as if... They could hear the call of God to repent, and they might have even had a, a desire in them somewhere to save their lives physically and to, and to take the offer from what God was offering. And yet, as their hearts contemplated moving in that direction, they just came up against the reality of walking away from this life they knew and from all it, it gave them, and it was just too much to ask at that point. The trade-off was too big. I mean, as silly as it sounds, right? Because in any logical scheme, saving your physical life would be worth anything. If that's your priority, right? But it doesn't work that way when you're deceived by sin. And so they stumbled over that and they died. The writer of Hebrews describes a similar concern for those believers who would indulge in their sin for too long. He says in Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, the writer in that passage, and as part of a larger passage, he's appealing to believers. He draws upon, in his teaching there, he draws upon the experiences of that unbelieving generation of Israel that left Egypt and wandered for a time. And he he points to how they had been exposed to such great signs and wonders during the Exodus. And nonetheless, despite that, their hearts remained unbelieving. Uh, He says elsewhere, they were an unbelieving generation. And because of that, they fell in the desert. They remained outside the promised land. Now, his application to the church is they remained in that state despite all of that power God displayed before them because they had been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, specifically the sin of apostasy. And as we pursue sin over time, we also can learn to live in rebellion against God, which is apostasy. And as you become comfortable in that lifestyle of apostasy, you get deceived into thinking you can get away with it. That's the deceitfulness of sin. It gets you to think you can get away with it. That it's, I mean, something of this sort. You know, it's worked out so far. So far, so good. 
I can just keep doing this. Nothing seems to happen when I do this except what I want. You aren't thinking about your judgment. You're not thinking about the consequences. You're lost in the moment of sin. You're just enjoying the fruit of it. That's the deceitfulness of it. It doesn't just rack up consequences down the road. It also hardens your heart in such a way that you aren't receptive to a call of repentance. Because from the standpoint of that hardened heart, you don't need it. A hard heart is not receptive. It has no interest in mercy because it doesn't sense its jeopardy. You know, a soft heart, on the other hand, that's a heart that sympathizes with God's own sorrow over rebellion. A soft heart hears the counsel of the Spirit. It responds to conviction in a healthy way. And in the end, it desires to turn to God, much like the prodigal son turned back and went back to the father. You remember in the story in Luke 16 of the parable of the prodigal son, you remember the son's turning from the sow, the pig sty, to the father happens in the moment when he remembers his father is a kind man, generous even to his servants. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. But a hard heart that's been deceived by sin isn't interested in the kindness of the Father because it's content with the fruit of sin, with the satisfaction of what it has. And the Bible says we can learn to move to that point. We can learn to enjoy that apostasy too much. That's what happened in Israel. The heart of God desires that His children would not wander away. And as they do, He woos them back through conviction. And he even warns us in his word, don't go too far. You may not come back. So the Lord says in verse 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. I'd rather them live by repenting. Ultimately, he called them to repent under the law so they could live physically. We know the ultimate form of repentance is that we would repent from our sin, turn from our dead works, turn to Christ and live eternally. He was only asking for the lesser in their case. The greater would have been potentially another option for those who lived. Finally, we're ready to look at the last excuse. We're going to do the whole chapter in 19 because it's actually kind of easy. It's kind of fun. It's a, it's a poem. It's a lamentation that tells a part of the story that's been already understood, but focuses in on one final excuse, one final attempt by the people of Israel to remain skeptical when it comes to all of Ezekiel's prophecies. And appropriately enough, the people chose for their final excuse to place their hope for salvation in the very men who brought them into this problem in the first place, their kings. Since the division of Israel following Solomon, the southern half of Judah has swung back and forth historically between good kings and bad kings. You may know this pattern. Now, the good kings typically followed the law. They, they did away with idolatry for the most part, but they didn't last long. And then when there was a bad king to follow, they would just set up all the high places all over again. And that increasingly became the pattern. Evil men who encouraged idolatry and the sinful practices that accompanied idolatry, and they were largely responsible for the downfall of the nation of Israel. They killed the prophets sent to warn them. They encouraged the people to engage in what they promulgated in the high places. And the people would embrace those leaders and follow after them despite their wicked ways. All right? The, the height of this lunacy is that now that they're sitting in exile, because those guys were evil... They raise the excuse to Ezekiel that they don't need to worry about what God's going to do because God's going to raise up another king to save them. That's their final excuse. They need not fear Babylon because somebody in the line of David would come to their rescue, like the cavalry. Somehow, despite you know, how powerful Babylon was and despite the fact that they're already in conquest, well, somebody's going to rise up. You know? It was fantasy, total fantasy, self-deceived fantasy. You've already had two attacks already. You've got nothing left. All right, so the Lord responds to Ezekiel. 
setting aside this excuse. And he uses a very unique way in this case to answer him. He sends Israel a lamentation. Now, a lamentation is a form of poetry written as historical commentary on some tragedy or disaster. You have a book in your Bible called Lamentations, by the way. It's written by Jeremiah. And, interestingly enough, that whole book is about the third and final attack on the city of Jerusalem, which is what Ezekiel is prophesying about. So if you read the book of Lamentations, you're just reading one big historical poem about how the city was conquered by Babylon in its final conquest. All right? But in this chapter of Ezekiel, you have a mini-lamentation over the downfall of one aspect of Jewish culture, the thing they're depending on, this coming king to save them, now, this is a lamentation that shows the end of the Davidic dynasty in Israel until a future day. And the prophecy has two parts. We're going to do one part, and then we're going to do the second part. It will not take very long. The first part is an allegory using lions, and the second part is an allegory using a vine. Let's do the lions. Verse 1. As for you, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, What was your mother? A lioness among lions. She lay down among young lions. She reared her cubs. When she brought up one of her cubs, he became a lion, and he learned to tear his prey. He devoured men. Then nations heard about him. He was captured in their pit, and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. When she saw, as she waited, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. And he walked about among the lions. He became a young lion. He learned to tear his prey, and he devoured men. He destroyed their fortified towers and laid waste their cities. And the land and its fullness were appalled because of the sound of his roaring. Then nations set against him on every side from their provinces, and they spread their net over him, and he was captured in their pit. They put him in a cage with hooks and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him in hunting nets so that his voice would be heard no more on the mountains of Israel. That's part one. All right, you have a lioness. And her cubs, now before you go very far in trying to interpret the allegory, there's one obvious detail you're working with right from the start. That is, when you're in the context of Israel, the symbolism of a lion in Scripture is very clear. That is, it always represents the Davidic line of rulers that come out of the tribe of Judah. In fact, we say the lion of Judah is a term referencing the Messiah, right? Coming in the line of David. So any allegory about lions that's set in the context of Israel is almost certainly pointing us in the direction of the Davidic line of kings in Israel. And the details of this allegory would confirm that. Notice at the beginning, the lamentation is addressed to the princes of Israel. And prince is another term in the Bible for the king or the leader of the people. That's additional confirmation that we're speaking here about the kings of Judah. So you're looking at a story told in symbols of a historical one. Remember, Lamentations look backward. So you're talking about those who assumed the throne of David in Israel and what's happened. And in verse 2, the allegory begins by asking this, this man, anyone who might assume the throne in Israel, anyone who might be a prince, they say, who was your mother? What was your mother? Or another way to say it is, where did the kings of Israel come from? And the answer is, well, they are cubs of a lioness. That is, the former kings of Israel were like the lioness in that they produced cubs such that every generation of king in the Davidic line would have sons, naturally. And in some time, that son would rise up and become a king in his own day. And so what the allegory sets you up with at the outset is the kings are raised up from old generations of kings. A lioness is this current the source of kings and her cubs are the next 
generation of kings in the Davidic line. No, no revelation there, just basic uh, understanding just to get us going. But then in verse 3, we learn that in a particular day, there was a certain king, a certain lion cub, who came to power, took control of Judah, and then he began to tear his prey apart. Now, a lion does not typically do that. Don't take that as some general reference to how they kill and eat and so on. Now, they don't tear their prey apart. They eat it. But the lamentation is describing something different, tearing its prey to pieces with great savagery, senselessness. Moreover, it says he starts devouring men. So, in other words, as this king, who's represented here by this cub, as a certain king went about his tirade of rule, we're told in verse 4 that he was tearing the nation apart. He was tearing apart his prey. And another nation heard of his antics, in verse 4, and took advantage of that turmoil in Israel. The Lamentation names that power. It's Egypt. Egypt captures this king of Judah in a pit, it says, bringing him back to Egypt in chains. Now, that's enough detail right there that we can begin to nail down who we're talking about historically. And sure enough, this describes the reign of King Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz, you can read about in 2 Kings 23, 31. This is the last king who reigned prior to the kings that were defeated by Babylon. This is the last king of the Davidic line before you get to the guys who were attacked by Babylon. And in 2 Kings 23, 31, you hear this. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Pharaoh Necho, that's the Pharaoh of Egypt, Pharaoh Necho imprisoned him at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a fine of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah his father and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away and brought him to Egypt and he died there. All right, that little bit of history simply illustrates how the allegory is describing accurately the events. You have Jehoahaz, he was imprisoned in Egypt. The Judea people, Judean people at the time, held out some hope. You notice it says when the mother was waiting for her cub, there was this time in Israel when they thought maybe their king would come back to them. And that was despite the fact that he was a tyrannical ruler. The people still wanted him. And he never came back, he died in Egypt. And the lesson of this allegory then, at this early stage, is you may be thinking you're going to get a new king out of the line of David, but you ought not wish for the Lord to reinstall some evil king. Given Joahaz's experience, history says God's not likely to do that. Last time he took an evil king off the throne using a foreign power, the guy never came back. So it's not going to happen again. Then in verse 5, the allegory goes on to describe the mother lioness raising up another cub. Okay, so the line, the mother lioness represents simply the line of Davidic kings, the source of kings. And after one's taken off the throne, another cub gets to come to power. We hear him mentioned in 2 Kings 31. Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was the grandson of the last good king of Judah, Josiah. And he's the next cub to occupy the throne. Now, technically, there was another guy between them. Historically, Jehoiakim came between these two men. But that guy's skipped in the allegory because the point of the allegory is not to detail every king in the line. The point is the end, not the middle. How did this come to its end? So in verses 6 through 9... You hear how that second cub comes to his end. He's just as bad as the prior king. No surprise there. 
He came to power after the Babylonians had already conquered Judah once. And as he did, he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And in some of the things you see in the allegory, fortifications being knocked down, that's him rebelling against uh, Babylon. Rampaging over his own people, raping the land and the cities. He was a terrible king. That behavior appalled Babylon. And so they sent people down to conquer Judah again. They hauled off Jehoiakim back to Babylon. And you see him being said to be pulled out to Babylon with hooks. You see that? All right. Notice at the very end of verse 9. The lamentation comments that the sound of the lion's cub would no longer be heard in the land. Now that's not just a comment about Jehoiakim, the last king in that group. It's also a commentary on the immediate future of the Davidic line. The Babylonian captivity puts an end to the line of David ruling in Israel until, what do you think? Until Jesus. There was never another Davidic king on the throne, nor will there be until Messiah. That's another consequence of the Babylonian captivity. Israel loses kings until the proper one can return. Which brings us to the second part of the allegory, the vine. Starting in verse 10. He says, Your mother was like a vine in your vineyard, planted by the waters. It was fruitful and full of branches because of abundant waters. And it had strong branches, fit for scepters of rulers. And its height was raised above the clouds so that it was seen in its height from the, with, the masses, or with the mass of its branches. But it was plucked up in fury. It was cast down to the ground and the east wind dries up its fruit. Its strong branch was torn off so that it withered. The fire consumed it. Now it is planted in the wilderness, in a dry and thirsty land. And fire has gone out from its branch. It has consumed its shoot and fruit so that there is not in it a strong branch, a scepter to rule. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. All right, so the subject here is not changed, just the imagery. Now you're looking at a vine, which is a classic picture of who? Of what? Israel of the nation as a whole now, right, of Judah. So speaking of the nation as a whole, the Lamentation says in verse 10, God planted this nation in a very fruitful place in the land he gave them, and it had the result over time of strong branches, strong enough to uphold the scepters of kings. In other words, out of the planting of Israel in the land, God raised up the Davidic line of kings, starting with David, going to Solomon, and so on. It was a strong, majestic rule. It was the jewel in the crown of Israel to have these strong, mighty kings ruling. And the nation and its rulers prospered in the land because they obeyed the Lord and the Lord blessed them. And by the way, at the height of its glory under Solomon, the kingdom that Israel presided over was the strongest the world had ever seen at that time, the the largest kingdom in the world, the strongest in the world. And it rose above the clouds in verse 11. The Queen of Sheba came to see it. I mean, it it was a show. It was a big deal. It was seen from everywhere. But then in a certain day, it says, the vine was uprooted from the land in fury, verse 12. The reign of kings was cast to the ground, torn off, fire consumed it. And that's a picture of God bringing to an end the line of Davidic kings ruling in the land and the vine itself being uprooted from Israel, that is from its own land, and put in a dry wilderness, that is Babylon, and scattered around the world, in fact. This is the consequence of what God is saying is, is coming. Notice how he ends it in verse 10. He says, this is a lamentation. And it has become a lamentation. What's curious about this is from verse 10 onward, the, P, the second half we just covered, the vine, it's all future from when it was written. That's very uncharacteristic of a lamentation. Lamentations are historical. You lament something that's happened. So what Ezekiel says at the end is, 
This is both a lamentation of what has happened, and it is to become essentially a lamentation of what I'm saying will happen. So you're halfway between at the moment it's being written. The point of the lamentation, though, is pretty clear, right? The exiles in Babylon were only fooling themselves if they believed that their Davidic line was somehow going to magically resurrect itself and come to the rescue while they're sitting in Babylon. The final king of their age, Zedekiah, was already on the throne at that point. There wasn't going to be another one. That lamentation predicted he would end up in Babylon and after him there would be no scepter in the land. And therefore, no chance that a future king would rescue them. Uh, Thomas Constable had an interesting commentary note on this at the end. He said, It is appropriate that this last section in this part of the book, remember we're finishing now a section within Ezekiel, a major section that constitutes these excuses. He says, It's appropriate that this last section in the part of the book that consists of Yahweh's reply to the invalid hopes of the Israelites should be a lament. Judah's doom was certain, so a funeral dirge was fitting. All the exiles could do was mourn the divine judgment on their nation that was to reach its climax very soon. And not until Jesus Christ returns to the earth to reign will a strong branch and the ruler's scepter arise again in the line of David. All right, so we have just come to uh, uh, this, this end of the section I described on their excuses. We only have one more section in this book that deals with the fall of Jerusalem and its four chapters. It's actually arguably the most fascinating four chapters of the book, especially on this side, on this half. Uh, It's going to include a review of of Israel's rebellious history again, uh, another look back on their leaders. But in there, it includes some very graphic descriptions of the nation's perversions and sins under the leaders. As we get a little closer to it, I'll warn parents, if you've got younger kids, it may not be appropriate. It uses some very colorful parables and allegories. Colorful is a nice way of saying it. But as a teaser in in chapter 24, it ends with one of the most bizarre series of events in all Scripture that God perpetrates on Ezekiel himself. So uh, you'll see that when we get there. Dear Father, thank you, Father, for uh, your ever-present grace, mercy, and forgiveness that we enjoy by grace in the new covenant and that we could not stand without. Thank you, Father, for your warnings as well, that we can dabble too much in the sin of, of everyday life and not consider the risks that it poses to our heart. I pray, Father, that everyone's heart in this room would be soft or made so to consider your calls of repentance and the everyday walks of life that we have where we make a wrong step to the left or the right, Father, as you counsel us out of it, I pray that our hearts are listening. And if any of us have fallen into that pattern of sin that has closed us off to the concept, to the thought of a repentance, I just pray, Father, you'd speak one more time as only you can and that our hearts would hear it now. Thank you, Father, for Ezekiel, for his faithfulness under difficult circumstances. And may we emulate that in our own walk. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.